What's happening, weirdos? This is the incredible Rhonda V. McGee, who is the author of the also incredible and brilliant The Inner Work of Racial Justice. I've been mentioning for a few weeks now that I've been wanting to do an episode to directly address all that's happening right now, the climate of uh, change and resistance and uh, growth, hopefully, and evolution. Um, and this is that conversation. Um, Rhonda is wonderful. As I always say, let's get to it as quickly as possible. I do highly recommend her book um, to bring the inner work into our outer work, because as as you'll see in this conversation, I do believe they inform one another. Um, and I'm just so happy to uh, have her on and get all that she has to say out. I guess that's true of every episode, but it's especially true of everything that's going on now um, and all, all that we need to be talking about, Black Lives Matter and uh, the the resistance that's happening and the, and the movement that's happening right now. Uh, I do want to mention a couple things. What do I want to mention? All episodes are brought to us by our friends at Charlotte's Web, cwhemp.com slash weird and promo code Keep it crispy. Nineteen will get you ten percent off. I'm holding them right here. These are my calm gummies. Very subtle, very very helpful in these uh, stressful times. So if you want to show your support of the podcast, try them out. Uh, we also have a new Pete's pick this week, which I'm very excited about, which is Living Libations. As you guys know, I'm sort of a, you know, I think about what I eat. I'm a mindful eater in terms of. I want to know what I'm putting in my body. I'm very careful about what I put into my body. But I realized a couple of years ago that I wasn't being very careful about what I put on my body. And of course, your skin absorbs everything you put on it into your body. But uh, I knew that. But regardless, I was still buying shaving cream and face washes that I knew were garbage deep down. But I thought they were fancy because, you know, they were expensive and French. <laughs> and I thought I was doing something good for my skin and my body. But of course, we know this, they're actually made with chemicals that are linked to disease and toxic toxicity that were never intended for humans. You, who looks at the ingredients on their face cream and goes, yeah, pure enough for a babe. It's just not the case. And I always, I didn't know that there was a better way. There is. And it's my friends at Living Libations for years now. I've been using Living Libations. It's gotten some traction uh, over the years. It's become very, very popular. Um, but I found them and was very excited that I could eat food with ingredients that I recognize, but I could also use skin and eye and tooth products that were the same, that, I, that had ingredients that I could recognize and knew came from the earth and were real things, not made in some weird lab. I started with their uh, Ginger Exfoliating Scrub Pro Tip. If you exfoliate before you shave, fellas, uh, game changer. So I got that. I got the ginger exfoliating scrub with ingredients I recognize. Works fantastic. It's not some like middle of the road natural compromise. It's an excellent exfoliating scrub made with plants and oils and extracts that you recognize. And it's wonderful. Then I moved up to the Zen Shave, which is their shaving cream. Uh, which is clean and natural, so much so that you can actually use a dab of it as your aftershave, meaning it'll rub and and be absorbed right into your uh, skin, not some anonymous neon blue goo shot out from a pressurized can garbage. So I went from the scrub to the Zen Shave, then I moved my way up to the Best Skin Ever, that's what it's called, Best Skin Ever Moisturizer. This is what I've used every night, smells great, 
feels great, put it on before bed. And again, ingredients that you recognize and also work and feel and smell fantastic. Whatever your skin needs, I guarantee go to livinglibations.com. They have face stuff. They have body stuff. They have eye stuff. They have teeth stuff, even stuff for babies, which is what we are using on baby Leela now. Because where, except a baby, would you absolutely want to make sure that you're using the purest and best stuff around? So it is whatever you need. They have a premium, natural, and wonderful product to replace, in my case, the random chemical nightmares that I was buying at Seven <laughs> Eleven. So I'm so happy to have them on board. Uh, if you want to show your support of this podcast, a wonderful way to do it, go to livinglibations.com, check something out, and they are giving us 20% off for the listeners. Just use promo code WEIRD at checkout, and I am definitely going to be doing that because I am fully, I don't want to say addicted, but let's just say committed. I love their stuff. Speaking of what I put in my body, you all know that I've been living for the past couple months on Kachava. I'm trying to limit how much I go out, as so many of us are, and it's been harder for me to get the nutrition that, honestly, my body has become accustomed to in terms of my mood, in terms of my energy level. So I have been swearing and living on Kachava. Kachava is a plant-based superfood drink mix. It would be underselling it to call it a protein drink, but it has a lot of protein. All plant-based. It's got omega-3s from chia seed and flax seed, not an anonymous barrel of weird nameless fish being pressed in a barrel somewhere. It's got eight super fruits. It's got 17 greens and veggies, gluten-free, soy-free, artificial sweetener-free, preservative-free. <laughs> it's got digestive support, 1,000 milligrams of adaptogens, 24 grams of plant-based protein, and 9 grams of fiber. Now, normally when you hear all that, you're like, it probably tastes like crap. That's why I pick Kachava. This is the entry level. This is the for everybody. You will enjoy it. You don't have to be a weird Birkenstock hippie health nut to enjoy it. Everybody I've given it to loves it. It's actually delicious, but even better, it makes you feel amazing. The maca root for vitality and energy. The raw cacao, which has a wonderful mood elevating quality. Keeps you full for five hours. Incredible stuff. Go to Kachava, K-A-C-H-A dot com slash weird, and you will get 20% off your order and show your support of this podcast. Thank you, Kachava. Speaking of superfoods, uh, the last Pete's pick this week is from our friends at Noni New Age. I just got turned on to the health-boosting superpower of Tahitian Noni juice. My friend David sent me some. It's scientifically proven to boost immune activity and naturally enhance energy and support overall wellness. I personally think it tastes great. It's a little tart. tastes a little bit like pomegranate juice or maybe blueberry, kind of like an undertone of blueberry because there's blueberries in it. I was skeptical, but David showed me that there are peer-reviewed double-blind studies with placebo that show four ounces twice a day of Tahitian noni juice increases your natural ke- natural killer cell count, your NK cell count, by 30%. That's giving you 30% more cell ammunition to help keep your immune system stay powerful. And honestly, that's what I love most about it. I take it in conjunction with uh, a, a supplement called Cell Defense, which is clinically shown to help your body fight inflammation. I take it in the morning. I take it in the afternoon, four ounces twice a day. And my favorite part of it is that I know that I'm doing something to help keep my body optimum, to help my immune system functioning properly and powerfully. It's got antioxidants. It's got powerful adaptogens to defend against stressors. 
It enhances your energy. I find it to be uplifting in my energy and supports overall wellness. So if you are looking for something you can do uh, to feel good and to know you're doing something great for your body, get some Tahitinone Geo in you. Uh, a bottle of Cell Defense, their supplement, and a one liter of Tahitian noni juice usually goes for 100 bucks. But for listeners of this podcast, you can get both for 40 bucks and show your support of this always free podcast. Go to noninewage.com slash weird40 and check it out and get into it and try it today. So thank you, Noni New Age. Thank you, Kachava. Uh, special thanks to our new friends, Living Libations, old friends, new on the podcast. And get yourself some calm gummies from Charlotte's Web Hemp. This is all good stuff. Everything I'm talking about is literally either on my desk or over there in the kitchen. So I love it. And that's why I'm talking about it. It's, it's the Pete's Picks, baby. It's the ABC's of Pete's Picks. All right. Also, so sincerely, check out the inner work of racial, just, of racial justice and go to Rhonda V. McGee dot com and check out more of what she has to offer she is incredible and a delight and i can't wait for you to hear this one uh so please get into it i i'm just i just took a moment as i try to do with all my guests I, and something i like to ask i go how are you right now feels very up your alley yeah. not how are you this week yeah. how are you this month but right now and, I, and you look very rested and you look very bright so i i'm, I'm happy to see but let's start with that how, how are you right now Rhonda V? You know, I'm pretty good to, uh, at this very moment, um, feeling like I've got up early and got some things done, you know, had some productive time at dawn around dawn, which often makes me feel like whatever else happens in the day, at least I got some, <laughs> some things, you know, that I needed to get done were already, already done. So I, I love that. I'm a, more, I'm a comedian, but I'm a morning person. Are you? I, I've actually been sort of thriving in this quarantine in certain ways. Obviously, there's the stress and all uh, all the stuff we're all dealing with. But I love getting up in the morning because if nothing else, you just said it, at least you did that. I think that's why people make their bed. They're like, at least uh, you, you get started on a, on a positive note. It's true. And I have to say, I, have, psych, I cycle in and out of being kind of more of a morning person. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily feeling like I'm a morning person right now, which is probably <laughs> another reason why I'm like, yes, I love getting up in the morning. Oh, good for you. I don't think of myself in that way right now. So. You went against type. It's easy for me. I woke up this morning before my baby. Like I, like uh-huh. she should be waking me up, but I woke, I didn't wake her up. I let her sleep, but usually oh, she wakes up. Baby. She's almost two. Uh-huh. So she gets up around 5.30 usually. Mm-hmm. And this morning I was up before her. I don't know why. Uh-huh. Lots of things. But I'm so happy. I'm so honored to have you on. You are brilliant. Oh, you are fabulous. Thank you so much. And it's a privilege. It really is. And I, um, with this episode in particular, um, it's really what, whatever you'd like to do, but I really want to offer it to you. Uh, this, is a, this is an audience that maybe you don't normally get to speak for. Oh. I watched a lot of your talks. I've been reading your book. It's wonderful. It's for everybody. Mm. But I love the idea of you slipping in comedian comedian actor whatever and then and then just like sharon salzberg does or mirabai bush does all these different people i love kind of changing the channel and letting you have it but and i'm almost done with my little preamble here i just want to say what you have to offer is so vital and so important i want to honor the idea that you might be tired of saying it 
<laughs> and I, so if you want to talk about other stuff, we can. I, I thought we might want to start with. We can talk one. about anything. Let's just. Yes. Let's have a nothing is off limits, you know, within. Perfect. Good taste. <laughs> Perfect. Because honestly, yeah, if I did a podcast and they were like, you can just have the reins, I'd be like, well, great. Now I have to give a lecture. We can just talk, but know that I would love to get some real good juice out there and, and some good uh, knowledge for people. That being said, I did want to ask you uh, maybe to start us off what your relationship is to comedy, because nobody's asking you that. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody is asking mindfulness. <laughs> Lawyer, author extraordinaire, Rhonda V. McGee, what she thinks about comedy. And by the way, you don't need to tell me that you love it because I'm a comedian. <laughs> Let's see. Well, it's so interesting because I have literally never thought about this question. <laughs> <laughs> love well, it. You're sort of in show business. Lawyer is sort of show business. It's it's oration right. and it's and it's performance. And but I just wondered, do you like comedy? Are you? Yeah, I mean, I love, I love to laugh. Um, yeah, there's certain certain comedians, and and you know, there's types of comedy I, that I like. I have I have some healthy. I think there's a kind of a tension I feel when I think about comedy, uh, as it intersects with the the kinds of ethical concerns of my life and work, which are about. Um, you know, expanding the sense that we all belong and we all deserve a certain amount of care and regard, dignity. Yeah. And so I know that, you know, there's that uh, edge around comedy that is about teasing, that is about, you know, um, uh, wrapping sometimes quite, I think, poisonous messages in humor. I couldn't, I just want to interject. I know you're in the middle here. I oh. couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, really couldn't. When I go to a, a regular show, if there are people I don't know on it, I think the question that you ask in your work so often is like, where are you standing when you say that? Like, who are you including and who aren't you including? And what story are you perpetuating by what we're laughing at in the joke? Couldn't agree more. So often, often so. Like, and, and that's why it's particularly ripe and worthy for us to look at it together, you know, yeah, um, yeah. at this time, because, and, you know, it is, um, it's the kind of thing that enters into, I think, the psyche, the body, in a warm package. Mm. So we're laughing, and it's such a, like, I mean, I feel like a visceral release, and mm. like this kind of, you know, kind of energy flow all throughout my body when I laugh that I that I love I think it you know research has shown how much it makes one more receptive to teaching mm -hmm. learning if we kind of put ourselves in the energetic and neurobiological space created by laughter or pr promoted by laughter mm. so it's for these reasons that I think it's particularly important to, to find a way to be in what I'm just going to for now call right relationship with the way that humor um, can move so gently with almost, you know, imperceptibly, imperceptibly from, from um, 
you know, just that kind of we're all laughing about, you know, innocuous, funny aspects of life into, you know, uh, harmful messaging and right back out. Yeah. Uh, and, and can do it so easily and with no real signposts. Uh, it can happen no matter how, how old or how young we are. Um, some of the more poignant stories I hear from folks along the road of the work that I do, of course, which is around bringing awareness to some of the more subtle ways that we um, suffer socially, including suffering around what we call identity, these kind of packages and assumptions and meanings people make just on looking at us, maybe That's listening right. to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so when we think about how, again, humor can so easily be brought in to kind of subtly mark those who are t- might be targeted for, at first it might just be a joke that diminishes. And from there, again, often research shows how that can escalate to mm-hmm. these people are the legitimate targets in our group, right, for dehumanizing treatment. Well, haven't we seen that blonde jokes, Polish jokes, whatever it is, you're absolutely right. I I think I I couldn't be the person who came up with it, but I've heard if you want to know what someone really feels, watch what they laugh at. Doesn't that feel true to you? And so it's so poignant on the other, like, I mean, I I honestly mean this. I don't mean, I, I really... You know, I feel like I'm drawn to the work that I do at the intersection of like academia and mindfulness and justice work because it invites holding complexity and mm. and and mindfulness for me is kind of a nice, if you will, technology for holding complexity, holding, you know, big questions and not, um, you know, the training supports not grasping after the first answer. Mm. Right. Like that's right. Because because consciousness itself is complex. Silence is complex. Exactly. And And the brain is binary and the brain is is dualistic. And the way we've been trained, actually, I'm not sure what the brain would do. (laughs) That's interesting. I did just kind of go like, oh, that's how the brain is. That's a bias that I have. I go, my brain likes to go, uh, Asian people are bad drivers, which is always the go-to safe example of racism. But uh, So forgive me, my Asian friends, but that is, you know what I'm saying? The bra- go ahead. The brain, we, but, and so we tend to think because it, when we hear someone say that, it sort of resonates. Yep, my brain does a lot of that. We Again, this question of how much of that is natural versus mm. how much of it is conditioned in our time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in other words, not just the content of our categories, the condition, right? We are conditioned to categorize certain groups of people with certain stereotypes, perhaps. So we might accept that that's the conditioning, but we might be tempted to say, but the fact that our brain does that is just the way the brain works. That's right. I'm not sure about even that. Yeah, well, which is it? It's it's like, which came first? Like, it's happening, and then we use that it's happening as proof that it should be happening, sort of. And it will always happen. Right, right. right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, we can maybe work on it a little bit, but everybody's brain's, you know, wired for, for, for these kinds of categorizations and rank orderings around them. Mm-hmm. I think that um, that's probably not as, I mean, there's research that has started to really provide some empirical evidence as a basis for staying with the question, staying 
right? Or fully in the question of like, mm. how does the brain really work around these things? <clears throat> how do we separate out what we've been trained, how we've been trained to use our brains and over-trained to use our brains? And in what ways are we um, missing what else we could be doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. And isn't a joke potentially, to condemn my, my own art, isn't it potentially a way of sort of glorifying and celebrating the way that the brain likes to make gross generalizations to oversimplify a very complicated and subtle and confusing reality? So yes. the brain likes that. If, if I go like, that's just how it is. I'm sorry. Like, here, here's an example. I've made it before. But they just talk about like, women are weaker i'm sorry like you th- this is an area it's like there, there aren't co-ed prisons because women are weak and there's the wnba because women are weak and this is why we can't hit a woman and and this makes everybody laugh it's such a like what a strange thing that the brain wants to celebrate you want to leave going the world is primary colors i feel less afraid as opposed to a comedian which there have been George Carlin comes to mind of people that are trying to push very, very complicated, nuanced things. But typically, and again, I'm just conceding the point. If you and I go to the improv on a back when reality comes on a on a Friday night or any club, I guarantee if you're go if you're in a heart open place, you'll smell which jokes are biased and pushing an agenda, even if it's as innocuous as like isn't winning great? Like we have very few jokes about like, isn't giving great or isn't being uh, passive great? We, we have a lot of like American mythology, like winning is good, eating is good, sex is good, men like sex, women don't like sex as much, uh, whatever it might be. Right, right, exactly. And we all know the stereotypes that would travel, mm. that would set up the jokes around white men Mm-hmm. about sex or uh, um, sports or, you know. Well, you get into that area where uh, when a, a black comedian, and I understand there's the drive to succeed, but you do see a lot of, I asked, I had a little person comedian, Brad Williams on, and I was like, to what point do you feel like you have to make little person jokes? And you start to blur that. I asked him, do you ever feel like you're blurring the line where you're making the jokes that they want to make about you, but you're saying that, so it's okay for their... So what I'm saying is you see a lot of racism. Yeah. Uh, white people fill up the gas tank like this, and, they, and they're not looking. And black people are doing it like this. Okay, so that's a socioeconomic uh, joke. And, and now a room full of white people are laughing. If I was like, black people are poor. Again, I'm just saying, like, I, I, I can't point fingers because I've done it. I want to concede that I, I have a joke. I, I, it was a, I'm, I can't say it wasn't a funny joke because it got laughs, but it was about being in a bad part of Atlanta and, and the implication. Part of Atlanta, which is what am, what am, exactly what am I saying? I, so I, 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 that's a big part of what I want to do with you is I f- see a lot of people saying that they don't have bias and they don't have racism. And something that I saw and I shared it on Instagram that really moved me, they were like, treat racism like COVID-19, assume you have it. And that, that's a conversation I wanted to have with you. So to, just to inform you, I was like, I said it looked like a Bone Thugs and Harmony video. I'm just saying it was a black neighborhood, but like a specific type of black neighborhood. And then I was uncomfortable. The implica- I didn't have to say it because I'm white. And then I wanted to leave. So I typed in Barnes and Noble. 
there's a lot of into my GPS. So there's a lot going on there. Neighborhoods like that don't have Barnes and Noble. I, I felt okay at the time because I was like, it's a true story, but, but there's a lot going on. It, it's, a, it's an ugly story. Go ahead. I, I couldn't hear anything you were saying, Rhonda. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I was just saying, agreeing with you that there is so much there. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> so much that we are assuming, you know, and what you kind of know to be true about the world is sort of implicit in all of that, right? So you kind of know what people will let. I'm, I'm reading, I reread from time to time different things that seem like the thing to be reading at the moment. And right now for me, um, Toni Morrison's works and her, and her, in fact, her latest book, which I'm just getting to look at for the first time um, oh, during the pandemic, um, The Source of Self-Regard. Mm. Yeah, but in that book, she has an essay that I have actually read before. It's kind of a compilation in, in which she talks about the, the notion of invisible ink. Uh, and for her, she's using that term to describe the participation that, uh, that is going on between, let's say, a reader and an author and text on a page uh, in, in that requires... Um, in a very subtle, often underappreciated way, the reader to fill in so many different blanks. I mean, part of that, part of we know this is happening. This is almost the thrill of reading. It's like you have a whole world that's emerging in our brains, which is why when we go and see a video rendition or a play rendition of something we've read, we're like, these are the people I imagine. Right? That's so- right. I cast it different in my brain. <laughs> yeah. Everything was different. But this is interesting. I guess I'll work with this. Yeah. You know, Tony was trying to get us thinking about that phenomenon as something that's arising that is, and it is definitely a feature of the way race and racism <clears throat> is often kind of running between the lines of what is either either ex- explicitly being invited from the reader, but often implicitly to fill in. And so I'm thinking about that as you talk about the jokes, because, again, she's talking about what's happening in the form of a book, you know, an engagement with the reader of the book. Mm. Uh, but of course that's happening whenever we're communicating. Right. Invisible narrative. That's and right. And then when you have a joke, it's like it's against some kind of invisible narrative that you're making this joke. You don't have to say everything because you know, you can guess. And I mean, you, sometimes you guess wrong. I guess that's when the joke will fall flat. You're like, I assume they're going to see this this way. Well, I'll tell you a time that it didn't work is I did a corporate show and the the CEO of the company was a black man and he introduced me. I did the joke. Everyone was white except him. It was somewhere in Ohio and it did not work. And that is, that was when I started being like, huh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like on my own joke. And I was uncomfortable. You're very good at pointing people to like, how do you feel? Because is there a part of you that knows that in that joke, I'm acting in a place of privilege or a place of um, I'm the normal one. Like, as I tell that joke, I'm like, this is a joke for normal people. Of course, I don't mean that. And I mean white people. I mean, this is a joke for... What is the kind of racial content of what we call normal? That's right. And, and, and you see that. That's why my first example was women. So many jokes are coming from a male perspective. And and don't even start with with transgender. I mean, like, you can't... They can't catch a break as a community. You can't catch a break. Um, That's so much, doesn't it, right? About, again, that invis- the invisibility of the 
normal universe, if you will, that we we are each often, you know, we are each uh, often un, in, in a sort of unconscious or let's say less than fully conscious way operating from. Mm. This, of course, is a source of so much uh, conflict, <laughs> miscommunication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, both the reality that this is always going to happen. I mean, I want to say that when I think about this, I'm not suggesting that our job is to try to get into each other's heads and, you know, somehow obviate this, like this will somehow not happen at, ever if we're mindful or if we're this or that. Mm. I think in a certain sense, it's a shock that we don't have more out and out <laughs> bloodshed <laughs> and miscommunication in everyday conversation, given how radically different the kind of fields of our, you know, the, the narrative normal universe that we care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet we use the same words and we make, you know, same, make a reference to something we more or less manage to get through the world kind of communicating well enough to get by. But I do think for me, mindfulness is about waking up to the challenge of communicating across these uh, radically different perceptual universes. Mm. And constructs, identity constructs. You you say something that I love you. It's like that I share. It's like you woke up in this thing. Like you were told you had a race. Whether or not you believed in race or knew what race was, you were told you had a race, you were assigned a race, you were assigned a gender, you were assigned a class, you were assigned a country. So you're inheriting the story. So when we talk about comedy, it's interesting. Comedy is typically a powerful thing. You're manipulating large groups of people. So one of the things I think makes it vulnerable to this type of unconsciousness is that you're wielding power. And one of the quickest ways to get to power is to is to side with the powerful, is to make generalizations that appeal to the powerful. So when people make pro-trans jokes, or or, or I, I catch the attitude when people are being very sensitive, they're like, you know, you're talking about less than blank percentage of the population or whatever. So they're saying like, you're talking about such a small piece, side with the powerful. You should be over here celebrating our power. And that's what I see, and I'd love to hear you speak to this, when when white people are like, oh, what are the steps? I, I see the protests. What are the steps that we need? And I'm like, what's needed, correct me if I'm wrong, but please inform me, is the willing surrender and sharing of power, which nobody wants to do. The powerful just want to go. We're, that's why I think white people, when you bring up sensitivity and racial sensitivity and whatever sensitivity, it's actually annoying if you're if you're paying attention to your body. You're annoyed that we have a good thing going. Yeah. That we're we're the winners. Everything works. I'm a straight white male. I'm walking around. Look at everything. It's just oh, everybody. So well, I used to have a joke, Rhonda, that I liked being pulled over because I wanted to see if the cop would like me. That was a, that was. I never I never really did it, but that is privilege. Rid is bit, and I I used to have a line where I was like, "It's confusing. Any any other situation with lights and sirens means you've won something." That's how much I didn't mind being pulled over. It's the whitest joke. It's the most privileged joke. I never even really did it. But my point is, yeah. when I talk to family members that are like, "Okay, just okay, what are the steps? Tell us the steps." They want to get the system involved, and I'm like, "The system is what's failing." So you're just like, let's get this system of people that look like me involved in the negotiations for people that 
we're asking a pretty big thing. Could you could you speak to that? Ah, uh, <laughs> I get You know, because you're absolutely right. This is uh, it's huge. Yeah. What we're whatever this moment is that I don't think any of us really has a handle yet on it fully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we know some, some kind of something is happening in the wake of the, um, what I call lynching of, of George Floyd Mm. following um, the kind of incident in New York city in the park, the bird washer, Mm -hmm. let's say, um, followed, which followed the Ahmad Arbery, right? There was just like a rapid succession of um, mm, sort of visual confirmation of a, a kind of a set of dynamics that many people had heard about, uh, seen maybe some evidence of, but had seen enough kind of plausible ambiguity that kind of denying of my it. whole life. I, I, I just want to tell you how right you are. My whole life. I, I, th- I mean, when I was very young, you'd hear about a black man, a, a black child with a toy. And you're like, well, you'd tell a story. He had to point at the cops and shoot it. And like, you'd, you'd always, always, you don't, there's some way of going like, it had to be something because we don't want to wake up. Waking up is the perfect way to put it, wouldn't you say? It's like we don't want to wake up because it's a pleasant dream for the for the people that are benefiting. So please keep going. I just want to tell you, you couldn't be more right, as if you didn't know. <laughs> no, interrupt me anytime in this way. Yeah. <laughs> We're having a conversation about this, this stuff that we do know. Like we mm. kind of all know mm-hmm. so much more. You know, that's my ba- one of my basic theses. We all know so much more about all of this than we than we admit first mm-hmm. selves, typically, certainly with others, whether within our own social group, cross lines of real and perceived difference. So a big part of what I believe we all need to kind of be able to do is, is as you put it, kind of wake up from the dream and and then um cultivate the ability to kind of be with the discomfort or um the cognitive dissonance the psychological dissonance the right so there's like there's so many different um there are bands or elements or rank this range within the discomfort like part of it is just like i don't want to be awakened when i'm having such a good time right i mean i'm just you know we're as creatures we're there's inertia we just want to keep doing what we've been doing Right? That's what George Carlin says. He's we're too well fed and too comfortable to change. So there's that, and but then there's also literally like the psychological, the cognitive challenge of it. When all the stories you've been telling yourself to stay comfortable and have been rewarded for believing to stay comfortable, punished when you seem to not believe those stories. This is another part of what we know happens mm. around maintaining the status quo. There's so there's a lot of reinforcement too. Uh, you know, a reinforcement of that kind of cocoon or that kind of comfortable space such that there is something real to the sense of dissonance and what, and I think, you know, it links to what's called fragility around this. That when, you know, it's presented with countervailing, 
contravening information, data points, narratives, it really is hard for people to take in mm. uh, in a way that is like, and I mean, psychologically difficult. I mean, it can feel almost like you need some help, you know, some therapy with this. Because mm-hmm. it's not just like, I want to be a good person. I'm going to be open to this. My brain is not ready for this, right? It's part of what's happening. And then the other piece that you are alluding to is just the kind of um, materiality of the comfort and the way in which, you know, comfort and being, uh, having access to power um, means some real kind of material protection against vulnerability, against the kind of hell, if you will, that is uh, part of the prescription that some people will catch more of, right, in a racist or a classist or a sexist, right, whatever that ism or schism is, it's all about, like, systematically and personally, interpersonally and systematically, some people are catching more hell than others. Mm-hmm. So there's like a materiality to the too, right? So there's so much there that, um, that for me, you know, I we all have a little bit of access to understanding the different um, pieces of it. We can understand, maybe we, I don't understand what it's like to be a white man, I could say. But if I unpack that a little bit, I know what it's like to be a human being. I know what it's like to, to have, feel like I have access to certain things and feel kind of comfortable in certain spaces and comfortable with the notion that I'm entitled to, to, to something and have somebody come along and say, maybe you shouldn't. In other words, I think we get a little bit too attached to these ideas that like, to have empathy for each other is, is really, really hard and, and, or, or impossible. Cause you know, you're a white man, I'm a black woman. There's no way we can understand what it's like to dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. That's true, but not as true as we tend to think. Cause we're actually at the same time, just human beings. If we break it down to what is it like to be vulnerable? What is it like to, have um, access to certain ways of being, knowing that feel at, comfortable to you, and have somebody point out that in a certain context that renders you unjustifiably more uh, comfortable, legitimate, powerful. It's uncomfortable. It, mm-hmm. it, so, so, and that's a human experience. This basic discomfort on the one hand, vulnerability. These are basically just human experiences. We can experience them in a package that's racialized or gendered or a sex orientation or whatever, a particular identity combination. But at the end, like if you really break it down, it's about, um, you know, radical, the existential reality of our just being the soft bellied vulnerable beings trying to find a place, a soft place to land. Mm. And so, you know, humor is one place where you find that soft fuzzy fog of unknowing or 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 fog of it's okay uh that you know again it's so poignant because all humans need a fair amount of it's okay Mm -hmm. research showing that if we don't get some kind of compassion infusion it's really hard for us even to admit anything Right, that needs to be changed, that we need to do. In other words, if all we're doing is like shooting on ourselves and blaming ourselves and shaming and you know, taking in and the kind of almost to the point of humiliation, right? Which is shame on steroids, right? To the point where you 
sense of self is rendered, you know, incapable of standing up in social, in a social world. Shame to that point is obviously toxic. And humiliation to that degree is toxic. What we want is to be able to kind of, you know, be in some sort of more, mm, some relationship with, with these facts, right? That, that is both in some sense true, in some sense pointing towards some realities that we need to kind of take a look at, but is, is sort of, um, but it's presented in a way that doesn't um, make it impossible for us to recognize. It doesn't, doesn't paralyze you. Yeah, it's paralyzing, yeah. you know. So so I think this moment for me, and, and the reason why I think mindfulness can help us and help us with looking at how humor plays a role in maintaining bias, how we all might be tempted to participate in that. We probably all have in some way or another. Um, huh. It's, for me, I mean, as I've already alluded to, part of it is just being able to hold complexity, you know, and hold multiple complex realities and, um, you know, and to be at the same time willing to have a courageous stance in the midst of all of this stuff. Mm. To have that stance again, with also some humility. Like, I got my courageous stance, but I'm just one human being and I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, to me, the more you go into, like, really a mindful holding of what it means to be a human being thrown into a world, in a body, like a world with a bunch of works in progress around all of this stuff, that we are not, no matter how good we want to be and how many steps we try to hear about what we should be doing, we're never going to up in and undo all of it. But, and we certainly can't do it by ourselves. But what we can, and, and you know, but we can, I think, become more willing to be awake. Really look at not just, I mean, look at what it might take to kind of keep wanting to wake up and keep wanting to learn the next message. So, for example, when you talk about how part of what we're wanting to learn, see, is the how it is that to wake up is partly to wake up to the need to share power, right? The power that the privileged among us on any um, dimension, whether it be we're privileged as to uh, gender or as to immigration status, our ability, disability status, right? You know, all of us in our intersectionality have some node of that maybe perhaps I mean there obviously some of us that intersect right we're women of color with disabilities that are older right we, I mean, mm-hmm. all of these though right may or may not um, land in our own experience in ways that that uh, highlight only the negative balance sometimes we experience a little bit like even I born in a poor black part of North Carolina um, have had privileges associated, just as one example, related to my citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, no one, very rarely do people think or presume that I might, you know, not be from America. Um, although that could change, right? Because that's just another construction as well. So really just being with all of this, first of all, to me, when you see all the complexity and you see that we, none of us are born like we all were thrown into a world with all these works in progress. 
compassion to me opens up from there. Like, and by compassion, I mean the, the will to, uh, to help, well, empathy and compassion. First, to see that we're all in it. Like, my ability to see that no matter what might be your outward seeming appearance, you're just, you're another human being. Like me. Ubuntu. The idea of Ubuntu, is that? Yeah, well, well. It's a little bit different, but like. Right, right. Ubuntu, Ubuntu that idea that um, not only do I see you as another human being who might be suffering, like I can just, I don't know all your suffering, but I know if you're a human being in a world that you didn't create, there's going to be some edgy suffering for all of us. Mm-hmm. And Ubuntu is really that plus recognizing that um, we are, in some sense, um, co-creating this. In relationship. Yeah, we're totally in relationship. And whatever my sense of myself is, it's in some sense kind of um, being constructed by your sense of yourself. And right, I am because you are and because you are. I am because we are I am. Right. Mm-hmm notion of the embeddedness of the sense of self and the way in which it's always in relationship yes which is the universe it's very when when i heard you say that the idea if people want to look into it more is umbutu it's very alan wattsy alan watts loves talking about how can you know something's big if there isn't something small or know something's dark if it wasn't for light or know something felt good if there wasn't pain and this is the world of of duality and this is the world of in out you can't have forward out without backward behind you so you can look at all that and be like oh so we're all so separate and it's like no the whole thing is defined by everything around it it's a system right so when, black, i mean it was reminding me of this other observation um, that I've been sitting with for years. And, and then, you know, it's like any problem that you've been sitting with for years. When you see somebody else talk about it, you're like, yes! <laughs> thing. But this is something that James Baldwin and Toni Morrison write. Um, and, and those of us who've studied law and look at, like, the notion of rights and the notion of freedom and struggle with those ideas in a world that is systematically denied rights to some, given rights to others, enslaved some, freed others, all under the same system of laws, right, and rule of law. And so to be in this place of trying to be in the system and work with it, as a, I am as a law professor and a person who's sworn to uphold the Constitution and all these different things, it's always been kind of a coin. Like, it's always been kind of a joke. Like, I mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, the people that the people that wrote the the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like the idea that like all men are created equal, except for women and slaves. <laughs> it's like so that I'm getting that from George Carlin. He was like, it's not that America has become messed up. There's nothing to go back to. But we have the to good. What's that? Create. We, we have to create it. It hasn't. It hasn't happened yet. Spider-Man. Yeah. Exactly. No. Yeah. And and so and even more. You know, this idea of freedom, right? It, again, as you put it, Carlin put it, <laughs> a freedom that by its very definition was limited to certain people. An equality idea, um, all men are created equal. Right. Literally, talking <laughs> only about men and only some men. Um, so when we have these really kind of on the one hand, these concepts that by by just they're like word magic, you know, like freedom. It like captures the imagination in some way. And you're like, wow, I want to be that. We want to experience that. 
and then to confront that at least in this context it had has been historically constructed not for all of us and then to figure out how to navigate and negotiate with that and to unpack then what freedom means through the lens of embodiment and and therefore it, and 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 huh, from that place to kind of at least be able to understand or see that people are talking often about totally different things when they're talking about, you know, what freedom means in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Toni Morrison and James Baldwin were often trying to get us to see the way the notion of freedom had embedded in it a bargain of like, like, um, we don't mean all of y'all. Mm. And, and that is like a hard, no one, we, we underappreciate the, ex, the, the extent of the challenge that we're still every generation living with to actually kind of um, name this sort of, uh, the, what, how do we want to say this? The way that this notion of freedom is, um, is const- not, not just contested, but it's like constructed, it's, it's constructed in and through uh, hierarchy. And so anytime we bring it up, we're almost inviting a battle because our history is, it's the, like, it's all, we, we're learning this when we think about the, the battle right now today over the statues. Mm. We're reminded that our history is right here, right now. It's not back then and there. It's still running through us. And so we try to have these political and try to come together, we in the law, try to resolve what does the 14th Amendment mean, the equality protections mean under the Equal Protection Clause. And every generation we have fight over that. Um, and we have people saying today LGBTQI rights are protected by the, uh, the Equal Protection Clause. Okay, we had to fight to get to that view. The language of the 14th Amendment never changed how we look at it, who we're willing to see as protected by it, constantly under construction and in, in, under debate. Mm. And, and you know, most of us, I think, it's hard to, to really talk about these things because I don't think we're taught a kind of complex holding of our history or of what it means to be engaged in democratic multiracial politics or what that invitation might be. I do think it's about, like, as we were saying before, we've never been that com- that country where absolutely everybody in a multiracial democratic way was invited fully to participate. We've always been, some of us, like people like me, have always hoped to make that those promises more real and, and had to kind of struggle with and against a completely legitimized narrative and set of trainings that says, Oh, yes, when we say freedom, we really don't mean you. Mm. We don't mean all of y'all. Mm-hmm. And so to make us all, get us all on the same page of freedom actually could mean all of us. It doesn't have to mean less freedom as a white, racialized, cisgender man. It doesn't have to mean less freedom. But it certainly can feel like that, given that we've, been, we've constructed a narrative of freedom that says, by definition, we mean more, than, more for me and less for you. Right. Yeah, it's really challenging. It's sort of the bad side of what we were saying. I exist because you exist. There's almost like a perversion of that where it's like, well, I'm powerful. It's almost like, couldn't you believe I don't, but in some sort of shadow government and Illuminati mythology, that's like, there always has to be 
someone getting stepped on. And that's why there's someone above them. But obviously that's not what any of this means and that's not what I believe, but it's almost like... No, I mean, I I actually think it's we need to pause with your observation there a little bit longer. Mm. I don't know that anyone, I don't know anyone who would articulate that, but I think the question that I sit with and others who've been thinking about these for, you know, generations sit with is whether or not there really is something embedded in the kind of white, racialized, dominant way of thinking about freedom right? That's traveled under the term of sometimes manifest destiny, mm-hmm. sometimes divine right, sometimes, I mean, they're all, you know, making America great. Mm-hmm. That, although we don't want to name it, sort of implies that to be fully free, this uh, group, <laughs> yeah, so this group to be fully free, this other group somewhere has to be not as free. Can I tell you, I say it all the time, but there's a New Yorker cartoon and it's dogs in business suits. And they say, it's not enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail. <laughs> and they come, it's a Leo column. If you want to look it up. I think that again, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. Is that how our brains work? Or is that how we've trained our brains to work? I think it is how we've trained our brains to work because it is that sort of like, well, if I'm succeeding, someone must be failing. If I'm getting special treatment, if I'm the, then some, but I, I, what we're saying, what we're trying to build, it sounds like in this conversation, is that true? Do, do cats have to fail for dogs to win? Well, and so I think a first approximation to like being able to be that society we might hope for for our children, let's say, is to be able to sit more in these kind of conversations and really really inquire Mm. in the way that you're just putting and not grasp after the answer right now, but just sit with what it means to even ask that question, honestly, again and again with other types of different types of people. That's right. uh, Right. And, and for me, again, where mindfulness can come in is as we create the capacity within ourselves to notice the conflict, right. That part of us that might kind of want it to, you know, might want the answer to be to maybe a couple different things. Yeah. Right? I mean, because that is how we carry these things. We have conflicts within ourselves, between our stated values, and what's at the bottom underneath those conflicts? Maybe some emotional state that we don't want to experience, right? That's right. This is where mindfulness can help. It's like helping build the emotional stamina, steadfastness, what I call, what many are calling agility, emotional agility, the ability to kind of notice underneath the narratives we carry about what we hope and what we think and what we, you know, intellectualizing it. Like, where is my body right now? Like, what is it really feeling right now when I imagine, you know, like, is it feeling a number of different things? Like exhilarated that maybe things could be different, but also underneath that, you know, somewhere in that kind of terrified. Yes. What, what, because, for most human beings, change, you know, is a complex emotional experience. Mm-hmm. That's why I was trying to concede that I, because I was looking. You yeah. talk about embodiment, mindfulness and, and meditation, sitting in the tension, may, trying to cultivate some sort of comfortability in the tension of not knowing, not looking for the answer, but just going like, Jesus, Louise, I have no idea. And Val, my my wife, has been helping me just like, where do you feel that? 
So when I was thinking about these, I wrote down annoying. I was like, I didn't know I was annoyed when people brought up other people's, but that's underneath the Pete that's like, I'm not racist. I think everybody's great. And then I'm like, are you scared? Yes, that's, that's, this is all you. I'm just saying what you said. Sit with that scared. We, we talk about our inner child. Like what part of the way you were parented is being brought back up? Like you're being shook in your bed. Lots of psychological issues, lots of societal issues, but it really does come down to how we feel. And and we're so detached from our bodies, especially men. I, I, I can say as a man, just within my experience, I don't know how I feel. Please speak to that. That is so, I mean, I'm so touched that you're naming that. <laughs> like, how often do we get to have a conversation at all with anybody? That's right. Right? Let's say we might have it with one or two people that are closest to us. But yeah. who just met? <laughs> Be able to get to this piece of conversation. Right? Already I feel like, okay, the day's work is done. <laughs> we got up early. Right. We had it. Well, that's why I don't know if you saw I was pointing at you. I didn't know what else to do. To say like what you were saying that led me to just par- say again to echo what you were saying because that is just so in my heart. We don't know what we feel, and then we're in our habitual brains. We're in we're walking the streets in our brain that we've already walked because the world is so complex and so scary. So we're just let's let's just be reactive. And when you say mindfulness is an exploration of where am I just running the same old program? It's like you can't do anything new. Richard Rohr, my homeboy, he's a Franciscan. He says, meditation is giving God. He uses God language. He says, it's giving, what's that? I met him last year, actually. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I love him so. He says it's giving God a chance to to take the reins and introduce something new, as opposed to you just, it's like ballet. We, we, we only have 15 moves, but we're like, maybe if I shuffle them this way, it'll be a new show. And it's like, it's the same fucking show. There's no new water coming into you. You're just swirling around the same water. Right. But in Aren't you here, so you sort of are tempted and seduced into thinking, oh, my water is so good. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> good enough. Looks better yes. than this water. But so we're afraid. That's all. I mean, again, there's so the con- the constructiveness of fear, right? And um, and also again, what courage it takes to be willing to 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 be in our fear mm. and to see if in fact it will swallow us alive and destroy us or if, like as we think it will right that it might actually just be a doorway into some new level of more thriving life and not just alone but really more richly together mm. so when we come back brings me back to the point about like, yeah, the narrative is the privileged and the powerful um, have to quote unquote, give up something, some of their power for there to be equity, justice, and so on. And in and, and a certain sense, that's true. But for me, it also invites a deeper reflection on what we mean by power in the first place. Because mm. again, we've constructed these notions that, that give us a conventional story of power. It's more about power over, less about power with. Mm. There's something so beautiful. And we do know it's out there. It's not like it's not out there. 
but it's definitely not the dominant way we think about power that it to think of it as something that arises in rich interrelationship with other people mm. Yet, what did we see in the wake of george floyd's lynching if not an explosion of the innate knowledge and sense that even in a pandemic if we're all feeling the same absolute like clear moral sense that this like this must change and we go out and we protest and we stand together or we sit at home and we protest on our tweets or whatever we <laughs> we are enlivening ourselves in some kind of way we might not have the language for it, but it feels powerful because it is powerful because it's it's, it's, power. it's power with power. i mean I say this on the podcast sometimes. I'm like, we could be done. That concept of power with or power over is such a, it's a million dollar distinction. And I have Richard Rohr on my mind. Again, he's, he's, he's a, a, a Christian, obviously. He thinks that's the idea of the Trinity. It's all about relationship. And he thinks we create God together. And when you see, I, I marched. And when I marched, you're, 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 you're feeling it. You're feeling God. You're feeling power with. And it was a very emotional experience because you're not, I'm, it wasn't just like what I, frankly, because of COVID, what I wanted to do, protesting with uh, your wallet or protesting with your tweets or whatever. When when human beings get together, like the end of Avatar, I always say, it's <laughs> like, we feel this is God, this is power with. Uh, 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 yeah. So yeah, Richard Rohr, Martin Buber, right? There are a lot of Right, this Ubuntu, this idea mm. of it's it's in that in between and in that we, you know, Dan Siegel is talking a lot about the we, the me plus we, and using trying to use trying to get us to use the word we. Mm. It's that kind of recognition that um, that 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 there's there's nothing better in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. I, in a way, oppression of all in all is kind of great and terrible forms. It's highest sort of apotheosis, like it's, it's, it's highest expression, right, is in having us disconnect from the sense of the, the, the joy of being human together. Mm. And instead to be so in our fear, so in our like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next. I know this. Let me cling to this. That we're constantly missing missing this oppor- these opportunities that are everywhere around us just to like feel the like in the green shoots of you know what can be mm. that can just come from in a non-transactional way right not because we're going to sleep together buy something from each other whatever we see each other's humanity mm-hmm. and affirm it fully and don't need anything don't need to try to get anything we just see and affirm it there is something like there's nothing more better, I think, in a certain sense than that. Mm. And, and so when I think about like the power, the notion of like negotiating around power as part of what equity requires, I think, yeah. And it's also about disrupting the, the whole idea that the way we the dominant conventional way of thinking about power is really the, all there is to power or the most important way of thinking about power or the best. Mm. In fact, I think it's really missing a lot, uh, really missing a lot. And so, you know, to be free 
in this kind of other way of thinking about freedom is, is more to be in this juicy, like, you know, and maybe ultimately we have to come up with different words. Cause I think, I, I really do think that people are using the word freedom and they were really <laughs> positive now oftentimes in our body to be some totally different thing. That's right. Right. But so part, but so Audre Lorde and other writers who've been thinking about this part that we're talking about now, the, the freedom, the life force that comes from just basic connecting. And, you know, you do this, right, with this work that you do. Podcast, comedy, also. Again, like what we're talking about, there's a dimension of it that shows up. Like everything is multidimensional. So even though comedy has, what we were talking about before, about jokes that sometimes, you know, teach about who's in and who's out in a way that's kind of pernicious and quietly so. It also is a place for connecting in that place of like just what's best within humanity. It can be. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. It can make, I, I've said this a million, but I, I'm saying it to you. It makes a group of people into one thing called an audience and they do something collectively. Yeah. And ideally the performer merges with that as well. It's very spiritual. It, it's something where instead of me up here manipulating you, we all become one thing called a show. And that can be very powerful. Because when back and forth between power over and power away. Like it's listening. It's absolutely the, the people that do comedy at the crowd always bother me. The people that do comedy with the crowd, because it's a hyper listening. I can tell you as a performer, and I know you know as a speaker, it's like they don't know how much they're driving the car. The sound of a specific laugh might tell me to go away from a topic or towards it or or be louder or be softer or change my set in the middle. I might change the complete tone or, or do a completely different joke. So it is this collective thing that we're building together. But the together is what is what we're talking about. And there's a dimension of this that's in, I think, I'm just going to put it out there as a hypothesis. That mm-hmm. There's some dimension of this that's in all interaction, whether it be the and the client, right, you know, or the comedian in the audience, the baker and the customer, right? Completely agree. And the whole game, this is my homeboy Ramdas, he says the whole game is can we drop the label? I want, in one of my goals in talking to you, and I I knew I didn't have to say it to you, but I knew you would understand it was, I would like you to forget the label guest and I would like you to forget the label host. And I'd like, and that's what I'm always trying to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we just yes. I, but I want my father to forget the father, the label father. I mean, that's I, I would maybe put that as my number one agenda with my parents. Is like, can we just be awareness together? Can we just be here together? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you really want that all the time? No, 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 not definitely not all the time. I enjoy and benefit from the role of father. Or it was fun. What's that? And host. That's right. Of course. Of course. But so that's it. It's like, it doesn't actually have to be either or either, right? I mean, part of what... That's that's what we're talking... Isn't that what we're talking about? I actually want both. I want... I want a sine wave of like, and now I'm the host and now we're lost. <laughs> we're, we've become one thing and now you're the guest. And, <laughs> oh, Rhonda, what was the name of your book? Now you're the guest. That's, that's all fine. But that, you, what was the word you use? I usually say subtlety. There's a subtlety to that. You were saying, I forget what it was. Yeah, there is, uh, there is, a, there is a kind of a, there is a subtlety to it, a non-obvious quality to it. There I like that, non-obvious. 
and then to me, what we're also talking about is a, a dynamism that I sometimes use the word equanimity to capture this. Some people use equanimity when they're talking about a certain kind of balance state. Mm. And to me, it's really more about a the state of moving in the direction one from the other and back and forth and being okay. That's right. be- being fluid, being fluid and flowing. And it goes back to Richard's definition of God is a flow. So that's why three. He's like, why have three? Nobody thinks about the Trinity. He's like, it's because it's an interrelationship between three things, which points us to the idea that... So he he says, this is all Richard, he goes, when you look at somebody that um, does a mass shooting or something, what are the, it's a cliche. They go, they were a loner. I don't know them. They were always alone. And, and and there's also the the aging person that just holes up and becomes a hoarder. And, and they usually become a little bit nasty and a little bit pinched and and uh, and and it's right in front of our face that like i i worry about a world where we are isolating because you can grubhub and then you have your tv keeping this false company and we don't as we're trying to do here we don't ask the question where is this network standing like from what position is this media or this one or and i mean all of them from where are they talking to me And then we start to believe we are our thoughts. We start to ignore our emotions. We start to ignore each other. And then you just become a story. And that's why I'd love to hear, I always say, I know people had a hard time with the movie Green Book, but what I liked about the movie Green Book was that it showed that when two people got together, the stories sort of go away. And and the joke I make about it is we don't have time for a road trip with every marginalized group. That's the problem. But we all know, and this is body swap uh, movies too. We're fascinated as a people, and I'm pretty sure this goes back to ancient Greece, with body swap. What if I woke up inside Rhonda's body, and what if she woke up inside mine? Well, what we're saying is, is this just our packaging? And of course we know it is. So if we could just get two packages in a car long enough that they go, wait a minute. I'm looking out the eyes of this meat puppet and you're looking out the eyes of that meat puppet, but in there we are the same. And isn't that what mysticism and mindfulness is trying to say? You're not your thoughts. You're not even your feelings. We can honor and and participate and work with those energies, but ultimately we are the same, not just humans, but we are consciousness. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Well, I completely, it resonates very, very deeply with, um, you know, some insights that I kind of feel like I've always had. And, um, you know, I think some, you know, rightly, wrongly for good or ill, you know, I have memories of being a little girl in that little town in North Carolina in a home of a lot of chaos, abuse, legacies of all the things that we're talking about showing up in the life of, you know, my father, a Vietnam veteran, who came back, um, you know, well, he came back, thank goodness. Hmm. And, um, you know, he had also been born in Mississippi, a whole different kind of war for a black. Hmm. And I mean, I write a little bit about this toward the end of my book that, um, you know, it should surprise me. It should not, doesn't surprise me though of this painful thing to experience as a little girl. Um, But looking at it from this place, I can completely kind of understand some of the pain he must have felt both growing up in Mississippi in a place where though he lived in Biloxi, um, right on the water of the Gulf coast, 
he was at that time as a young boy not allowed to get in the water because it was a white space entirely as mentions were from my fathers and our grandfathers and that whole set of generations before in the united states um and then to escape that like imagine how bad it must be growing up in that you know 40s 50s america as a black man in the deep south how bad it must be that you joined the marines in the time of war mm. um, for whatever kind of quasi-patriotic feeling he may have felt uh that's going to be a complicated feeling from that place right but mm. so there must be some way in which at least part of it is about escape being uh, the limitations of that context but then you throw yourself on another that's painful so my father comes back with alcoholism um he uh, some kind of deep pain i later realized he had a whole nother family he had left along the way oh, wow. uh, but what he i saw was like physical abuse in the house so i'm just naming giving you a little bit of a window into again this kind of somewhat arbitrary but my own particular journey the, the the path i've walked to this moment mm. but from that experience that kind of little house in north carolina where i had a little playpen that i spent time in i still have a memory of i have some felt memory of like a sense that this was not the whole story mm. right so this comes back to this mysticism that can be cultivated through our practice our practices and being in practice communities and studying uh, the Dharma or any of a number of any of the deep traditions that can invite us into the door, you know, can help open us up to the something more, the interbeing is the sense that we're one on a certain level. Um, and some of us have more access to that along the way or born with more access to whatever it is. And, you know, I, as you all know, as you know, I'm sure there's this term bypassing the question and the, the temptation um, that I think people want us to at least be aware of and to, to that mind against it is that if we're drawn to spiritual work, mindfulness or otherwise, we might be tempted to, through those experiences and levels of awareness, bypass dealing with or the call to wake up and respond to police brutality, for example, racism, for example, sexism, for example, et cetera, et cetera. Because you just say, we're just awareness. It's just it's just a game. It's not who I really am. But of course, you are a black woman. And you said that in one of your talks. You were like, I call myself a black woman. I know that is not the summation of who I am, but it's a cue to you that I am willing to have that conversation. And I thought that was beautiful. Of course, I am not a white man. And of course, I am a motherfucking white man. And like, let's... Let's be here. And, and when I look at the, the Trungpa Rinpoche talked about spiritual uh, bypassing a lot and, and materialism and, and avoiding things, people who lose um, children, people who go through unspeakable trauma, that instead of honoring, it's not a flaw in the system that we're different. It's not a flaw in the system that we feel. It's the work. It's our, it's karma yoga. It's what we're using as a vehicle to compassion, to wake up and to love. So it's not, a, we can't, so I'm so with you. I just, you just motivated, you inspired me to share. I love this. Yeah. Say, I mean, because yeah, I, I think this is a real, um, you know, this, 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 what we're talking about comes up in 
spiritual practice communities every day, every hour. We could find some, someone right now. We could stop here, get on Facebook, go find two people having a big debate about whether or not if you're really evolved and spiritual, then, of course, you don't see race. Um, that, that idea of... I, I I I see through it is another type of denial. I know that's what we've been saying. It's just an, and when you say a spiritual community, I do picture white women in Lululemon pants, and I'm a white man in Lululemon pants, so I'm not judging. But I'm just saying, like that's a privileged position. It's just what we're saying. Where do we get our news? Where do we get our thoughts? Where are we standing? And when and when we're a spiritual person, where are we standing? Because I, I can see that I have a lifestyle that gives me more time to even think about these things. And I think about James Baldwin. I'm like, that's a different, that's a different situation. <laughs> and that's why he had a different message. Exactly. And, and I honor that. And, 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 and we can't push these things away. So when you shared about your story, and I'd like you to keep going on that thread, I know this is where people are going to connect with you. Because they, people know about abuse. People know about feeling uh, afraid. And, and the, that, that, those are the colors that we have to draw people into the greater love, loving compassion, loving awareness, whatever it might be. But, but it's not, well, let's not go around it. Let's go through it, is what we're saying. It's who we are. Mm. I mean, um, and it's not Pollyanna. It's not trying to, you know, sunny side up it. You know, it's mm. just... It's the real, you know. It's both and. It's we can say George Floyd was the same piece of God that I am and that you are, but he was also a black man. To use your words, I agree, was lynched. So we need to deal with that. We can't. I can't just go. Hey, right. I can't pretend. We all have a you know right. That's another way we do. It. It's like we're all. Let's not be too attached to life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I've heard with, with the people that lose children, uh, they, well, it, that's my karma. That, that's, that's spiritual bypassing. And Ramnas would teach on that. He would say, you need to grieve. That's my, that's my uh, spiritual lesson to you is go grieve. <laughs> Instead. So many teachings along those lines, right? You know, teachings of the monks together, one... Um, witnessing you know uh the death of a loved one and then having this colleague say but you're so evolved what do you you know life is impermanent and he's like mm-hmm. i just lost this person in my life that's, that's right hello that's right. um that's right. i don't think it's a, a coincidence though to bring you back to that place that you were a child when you saw it um, I say it all the time, but Jesus said, lest you become as little children, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. So when I'm with my daughter, who's o- only two, I'm like, she's there. We all know this. This is why teaching anti-racist ideas to children is really just not fucking up an already anti-racist, you know what I mean? <laughs> not going like, okay, let's remove that. I remember people in my family making the joke, there goes the neighborhood. It's, it's, it's the same thing as like, don't drop the soap, is whitewashing a rape joke. It's a rape joke. There goes the neighborhood. It's just racism that everybody, I'm from Boston, that was just a thing people would say. Or that say, when I was a kid, I would get in cabs in New York and they would say, 
you know, when I was a cab driver, just because I was white, would just offer this to me. They'd see a black person go, when I grew up in this neighborhood, you wouldn't see that. I was like, why are you just assuming that that's what I want to hear? So like, it's not only given to them, we, we as a group have agreed to keep it going and, and perpetuate it. Exactly. Sorry, I, I don't know where that came from, but... <laughs> but you're pointing to so much that, again, that we often don't name, but that we all know so much about. That's it. I had a conversation, Mike Birbiglia, he wouldn't mind me saying, when this all, this awakening started happening... We got on the phone and we ended up talking about our earliest racist thoughts. And it was, I don't, I can't, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm telling you how it felt. It felt like the work. It felt like instead of going, well, I, I, blah, 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 I was just going, what do you, what was the first one you remember? And we, and we shared it and it was embarrassing. It was humiliating. It was uncomfortable. It, it was the sort of thing that you, your cheeks go flush and you feel a little ill. But I was like, it goes back to what I said, COVID-19, assume you have it. Can we, and when I'm, when I'm meditating and some horrible thought comes, can we, can we give it space and, and look at it and ask it what it wants, why it's sticking around? Wouldn't you say that this is, is, is part of what you're teaching with mindfulness? Yeah, absolutely. Teaching and exploring for myself. Because yeah. journey, you know, as a, in this human life, just like everybody else, um, you know, and I think calling for myself and for others for um, much more of a nuanced, um, you know, way of being with all these things. Because again, there's so many different ways that in our dominant culture we set ourselves up again and again for a certain kind of what can feel like um, like a new way of being comfortable. Mm. It, right, we're tempted to be uncomfortable for a minute, but no, give me the, the six steps or tell me the books I should be reading right now. That's it. What I should be listening to, right? It's like enough for, for no. I mean, again, it's again, both and like, yes, do some reading. That is That is your... That is a call for, you know, enlightened conversation. Read some things, learn some things. That's okay. But but notice that. Like, notice the temptation to, like, get in front of the anxiety. Get in front of the threatened judgment that you, we, I haven't done enough. Um, and really just, you know, put ourselves once again in another kind of cage of constructed, defended, fragile, like I am a good enough person in this really messed up society. I, I just want to, oh, sorry. Out of these cages, we keep putting ourselves in one, and then it breaks, and then we, you know, feel again the frustration and the sense of, but it's really, to me, that bigger call of like, stop putting ourselves in the, fragile constructed place of I already know and be oh break open to none of us really fully knows and we're all really deeply constricted and constrained by constant teachings about what it's okay to say with whom where how we have to present ourselves so that we don't offend these people or lose that thing that thing that we think we need and want to be safe Mm. this is real like the the constructed nature of let's say 
the kind of, um, I would say the kind of structure of policing and constructing us back into divide, division, into separation, into me, I'm in this place, you're in that place. It's, it's an ongoing thing that's happening all the time. So there is, I'm just going to tell you, right, there is no one set, there's no set of books, there's no, there's no checklist that will ever, I don't care how long you make it, how big your library, that'll like obviate the need for us to keep waking up around this. Because mm. if anything I've learned, if I've learned anything in the guess 52 years I've been on the planet from that little town in North Carolina to fancy San Francisco, if, any, if I've learned anything but traveling around the world in this body, with these questions animating my life, um, it's that, you know, these are the questions of our time. They're not going to go away. We do not, we don't have the capacity to answer them fully. We're, the best we can do is, I think, and this is what I really hope that my work represents, is start de deepening our capacity to be with our questions, to be with each other's questions, um, to just gentle, gentle ourselves out of the kind of, um, you know, again, the constrictions and constraints of like just what are going to be the next dominant set of prescriptions for how you make yourself okay during this moment. Mm. Like notice them, notice the temptations of them, but um, if you want to continue to be, let's say, the kind of person that I can feel safe sharing what's, you know, what I feel in my heart, I, I'm, I'm much more, I feel much more safe with somebody who's okay saying, I don't know, I'm working on it just like you. The people who, who I worry about are the people who are like, I just read the five books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because. Yeah. You know, so both and yes, I'm reading the books and that's right. I'm reading books and I'm and I'm still learning and I'm still trying to grow here. There's a real I, I know I keep saying this because <laughs> I know you already know, but it's I was reading Annie Grace is this woman who wrote a book called This Naked Mind about alcohol and it, and it got me to stop drinking, which was really powerful for me and it, it had a lot to do with bringing consciousness to this. So bringing like who is it that wants to drink, what part of you was told that it's good, to, all this stuff. What, so what I'm hearing you say is like, get in touch with the feeling of fear, get in touch with the feeling of, and doing that work, there's no substitute. And what she said was that there's a real human phenomenon and there's science to back this, that people will buy the book on not drinking and think that they're done. And she said that she sees, and I'll tell you that when I hadn't done stand-up, I would buy books about stand-up. And I swear to you, this is my own experience. I would walk around thinking I was a stand-up comedian, even though I had never done it because I, had, I hadn't even read the books. I had ordered, I had, <laughs> Rhonda, I had ordered the books. And I got to just tell you, and I, I know you already know, that's when, when I hear someone say, just give me the steps or just give me the books. What we're saying is, I really believe this, and maybe it's just me, is shut up. I want to go back to how it was. I want to go back to enjoying the Pete that liked getting pulled over by cops. So just tell me 
what do I need to say? <laughs> and it might be, well, Congress is going to work on it or whatever. Or like I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. So <laughs> come at me. Like I'm conceding that I have that too. And I see it. So I'm seeing it. I hope I'm seeing it with compassion, but I've been seeing that a lot from white people, which is just like, just tell me what to read and tell me what to do. But when, and it's not just race stuff, it is alcohol, it is sexism, it is fear. And it honestly comes down to Mr. Rogers. I'm watching a lot of Mr. Rogers because of my daughter. And it's like, your feelings are mentionable and manageable. And that is embodiment. And that is mindfulness. And, and that, really is the core issue of so many issues. Because if we don't get to a place where we can sit with an ugly or uncomfortable feeling, what we end up doing is we'll have conversations. But as soon as you say a buzzword, if you say white fragility, or if you say Democrat, or if you say Republican, yeah, whatever it is, you just put a quarter in my jukebox and now I'm going to play the song that my that because that's how our brains work. I'm just going to defend because why? Because I'm afraid. But what your what your work is doing is going like, let's let the sediment of the story of even who we are, where we are, what we stand for, what we believe, let all that sediment settle. And can you imagine a world of infinite possibilities? Because that's what this present moment is. It's a present, and, and we don't want, we want to make America great again. We want to go back to a time that doesn't exist to make it great for who? For, the, for us, who's us? But if we could get into the power of the present moment, mm-hmm. we might not be able to solve these things because I agree with you in a rational or quantifiable or perfect way. But in deep stillness, I think, there is already a perfection that we can tap into. I agree. It's difficult I, stuff, though. <laughs> no, I mean, another way, a way I sometimes put it or think of it is, um, you know, it's in, it's in these, these moments of being together and feeling our common humanity, our common, you know, just, <laughs> not knowing um, pain, um, the, you know, grasping for something to be different, all, all of our stuff. Mm. Being in a place where it's okay to name that and uh, not required of me to try to fix that right away, you know, if ever. That's... Which I think, if you really take that to its logical extension in a capitalist society in particular, I mean, you see how so much of it runs. I mean, alcohol is one kind of notoriously uh, obvious example of how we are given to, um, you know, be tempted to think we can buy and consume our way into enough comfort, if not peace, just enough comfort. Maybe that's all. Maybe that's the best we can have. Mm. Um, And and. You know, if you explore that, of course, so much of the patterns around capitalist marketing, um, our entire culture is built around, you know, the constructed nature of you always need more and enough really isn't enough. Um, and, but when you can be in a place where you can feel like actually, this is really, this is 
but you know, this is this is plenty. This is plenty. Like what the the, the exchange we're having right now is plenty, and the the brain wants to turn it into a product. Well, Rhonda, we're doing it right. So how do we turn it into something that we can then give to other people that they can buy it and they can have it? And that's that's a really beautiful in a certain level because we're like not only for ourselves, right? We kind of want to give. Well, I do like that people can listen to it. And and then what's really trippy is that you can just go out and, and do this. I had this with a neighbor recently, somebody I didn't know live in my neighborhood. And we, we did a social distance hang. And you know that feeling where like the world, like when Val and I are scared about the world, sometimes we'll just walk around the neighborhood and just realize uh, the world is still here. Like, look, people are still drinking coffee and, and there's a guy eating a cookie. And, and and if you can actually have dinner with your neighbors and and suddenly you're creating that this is enough sort of place. We, we do live in a consumer society where we turn everything into, I, I, I've said it a million times, and I'm, but I'm saying it to you for the first time. Dave Chappelle had this great commencement speech where he talked about, we've lost the idea of good versus evil or good versus bad, and we only have better or worse. So alcohol plays into that. Drink this alcohol and you'll feel better. But there's no like, what is the collective good or what is the eternal good how can we create connection and frequency i feel like i have i know i do i have the best seat in the house i'm glad people get to listen to this but i'm being ministered by this conversation that's why i was so anxious to have you on but but in but in this in this flow that we create it it stops becoming statistics and numbers and things it becomes a human face and and a human voice and and not just that it it becomes our voices together and and suddenly i'm like What's that? A world. The world. A world. Oh, a world. I'm sorry. Yeah, you cut out a little bit. A world. It becomes a world. Well, the one of the you have Buddhist leanings, if not uh, identify as Buddhist. But one of the teachings that I love is what in this moment is lacking, and that's one of those ones that you ask the brain, and the brain will answer. But you ask the heart, and the heart says nothing. The heart says nothing is missing. The brain goes, oh, well, I'm going to have to pee in 20 minutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I, I need to have lunch. Or... If only I had X amount of money in the bank account. It's like... That's right. Right now? Right right now? Right, 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 right now. The moment where you were having that thought is now gone and, and you were fine. So you could have you could have sunk into that infinite place. I'd love for you... Um, you know, it's interesting. I want to I want to keep my compassion... Because we can have the compassion sprinklers watering the whole lawn, and that is the goal. But it was something I've learned through Me Too and, and through this, we want to we point our compassion towards the victims. And that, that is something that I'm learning. Um, when we were doing my TV show, I was tempted to maybe do a show about the complexity of someone who was accused of a sexual assault. And we were like, but what were they going through? And Jamie Lee and I was like, couldn't we sit with them? And my what, Jamie Lee, one of my writers, was like, sit with us. <laughs> and, and that was a powerful, changing moment. That being said, I am curious about your work with, with law enforcement, because I know you've done some of that. Because it, it's a tricky thing, but I know a lot of people tense up when we think we're only representing one side. I, maybe you could just speak to it. Please. You know, um, what you're what you're inviting into the conversation again is just I see this as another way of huh, practicing what it is we're talking about. 
<laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not easy. It's not clean. Right. It could just be some platitudes, but actually trying to walk this of understanding multiple complex, multiple complexities and, um, you know, noticing when we're putting people in narrative boxes and not seeing everybody's full range. Um, you know, I many people don't know, and I'll, I'll probably lose, maybe some people will say, aha, right? Because this is what we do, we learn different things. But you, you may know if you've read um, my biography or heard some of my talks, you do know that I um, was a member of the military myself. Mm -hmm. I was trained as an army officer. I know what it's like to fire, a, you know, an M16 and on and on and on and be trained and prepared to do it if one has to. That was a long time ago for me. And there's a whole long story about how I ended up in that place. That is a doorway into empathy for me. You know, uh, not unlike my father, who became a person who was fighting in Vietnam after barely surviving Mississippi. Mm. Only to come back again with layers of um, you know, the pain that he didn't name but drank. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, sort of was abusive around. You know, this this the way we all are suffering is not, I mean, it's not something to take light. It's a real thing that I don't know your story. I don't know the story of, of any particular police officer, let's say, that who's who I haven't sat with. But I, I know that in general, we live in a world that um, gives relatively few good opportunities for many, many people to make a decent living in this country. Now, I'm not saying you have to then choose, therefore, or therefore that by itself explains the choice to A, be a cop, B, be the type of cop who might be within that you know, broad professional group to be that kind of cop who might abuse the power um, mm -hmm. in that role. But it is to say that from a, uh, the first approximation, I, 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 I know that there are people who are in that those positions who themselves have um, been struggling in some way and without adequate support or resources. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, I, I, I know from having studied it that Part of what's wrong with policing is that they're many times being asked to take on burdens that the rest of society has failed to adequately, ad adequately shoulder and share, like dealing with the mental health crisis that is rampant in our society, dealing with the addiction crisis and all the consequences of those. In other words, to be a police officer is to be actually under to be working under you know, incredibly stressful uh, work conditions all of the time. It's funny and that you say that. We, we were, oh, sorry. This is a way of excusing anybody's, whatever one might do in, a, in, in the way of abuse of the power that one gets there. But it is to say, let's step back and see the shape of the entire cloth and how we have created systems and structures and conditions that might put a young man of any background disproportionately so, but also a young woman or any person, human being, who might be 
find themselves able to get a job in the police uh, in that field, I mean, there are a lot of circumstances that can lead to that that I think need to be taken into consideration when we think about, number one, what's wrong with the system? Number two, how we might better resolve it. I have worked, yes, with people who are trying to transform the criminal justice system. And we've, for example, come together around um, the idea that every perspective as best we can needs to be a part of this conversation about transformation or else we'll get nowhere. So, you know, meeting together with everyone from people who've been victimized by the system, the criminal defense attorneys, uh, and all, and that end of the system, if you will, to, um, those who prosecute, those who make the laws, enforce the laws, judge, um, prosecute, bringing everybody together. And I'll say that from one such instance, we all came away from this like multi-day immersive experience of really listening to people from all different pieces um, uh, and points of view and perspective positions in these structures. We just came away feeling like, okay, absolutely everybody in this entire system is suffering. Everybody in the system is suffering. It's not the case. Mm. To say that doesn't mean it's all equal, right? Or that our concerns should be evenly distributed. But it is to say we have to, again, be able to see the complexity. It is it is the case that some are suffering more in these ways that are egregious and unconscionable, and we have to end those now. Mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, and we have to right, uh, reinforce the human rights campaign that is at the heart of Black Lives Matter, which is a mm-hmm. human rights campaign for all of us. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. And you can say that and at the same time say they matter uh, in ways that are really harming disproportionately brown and black indigenous folks, Asian American folks in this moment of scapegoating around COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Disproportionate and also, they're harming Black lives, uh, the, the kind of um, minimization and dehumanization and the undue violence and um, over-policing, all of that that's happening has negative consequences for all of us. It mm. psychologically damages all of us. So that's, I love that, yes. They're really suffering. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the police officers... One of the video clips that so moved me over the last couple of weeks, I have to say, I, I consciously try and do a practice around imbibing the visuals. I mean, I, first of all, I'm a law professor. I used to teach uh, cases in tort law that I don't know what that area of law is going to look like in the next year or so, but there was a body of law that was around recognizing the emotional distress implications of visuals being presented at people. And, you know, that the fact you recognizing that if you intentionally, you know, put a video out there that people are not ready for, that in and of itself could, right? There were all these real questions about, could someone get damages for being injured by being forced to watch something they had not asked you or, you know. Mm. So nowadays, of course, it's all like, we just put the videos out there and we just assume everybody can deal with it. You know, but I wonder what is happening to all of us as, you know, on the one hand, yes, we have the visual evidence without which we probably wouldn't be having this particular conversation at this time that's included all these things. 
we've needed a certain set of records, as we've said, so that people can say, oh, yes, this actually is happening, which to me is kind of devastating, I'm just going to say. Of course, of course. One piece of my own personal devastation is like, I'm not watching all of these videos in the same way because I don't need to watch, I haven't needed to watch them to to be aware of really the, the urgency of this these issues. But at the same time, I know many people did need to see them. So there's a complexity around that. But for me personally, I'm aware of the call to manage, to have some intentionality around how we're imbibing all of this, all of this technology. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of us really benefits from seeing certain things over and over again. Even, again, though we feel some positive coming from people waking up, there's something not so great about seeing these certain things over and over again that we might not ever be able to fully name right now. Mm. So it's like, uh, but I, I guess I just want to say that um, one of the videos that really did touch me was, of, I think it was happening in Los Angeles, and you may have seen it. Um, protest, protest, protester going up and down the crowd. He's on a megaphone. He's sort of inciting the crowd on the one side and the um, militarized police force arrayed on another. Like there's a line between the two groups that a protester on with a megaphone was walking up and down. And at a certain point, um, he in, invaded and invited the protesters to go down on one knee. And I, I couldn't hear every all that he was asking, but he must have said something to, that invited the police officers as well to go down on one knee. Hmm. Recognition of what was at stake in these protests. And first the protesters went down and then the cops went down, which itself was a riveting moment of visual. Hmm. Then, as he continued this particular one on the megaphone going up and down, you could there was a a little bit of energetic movement from one of the protesters in the direction leaning toward the cop and finally reaching his hand out. And immediately the cop grabbed the hand and then the two of them jumped up and they hugged each other. Now, they happened to both be, appeared to be white racialized. They both appeared to be. And this white racialized person on the protester side was in this, you know, multiracial group of, you know, being mm-hmm. in movement, right? Which is mm-hmm. in and of self visual. People from all backgrounds. But then to see these two get up and they were the first that let off a ripple of mm. protesters of all different backgrounds reaching out with people on the other side of that line. They were just acknowledging, I think, in order to stand down. And after that, the police left. So this, I think, was a, one of the times when the police were told, you can leave, you must, you know, clear out. Mm. But before they cleared out, there was this moment of acknowledging, hey, we're just, we're hurting too. Mm. We're hurting too. We're just human beings. If we could, some of us would be right up there with you, but we'd be, you know. That's so right. It is not simple, these issues in these times, this time. I have to tell you, Rhonda, that thank you. <laughs> And I was so nervous, that whole story. (laughs) I was so nervous that you were going to tell me that it went sideways. Because when you talk about fear... Sideways in a way, didn't it? Yeah, someone grabs a hand, I'm like, and then he freaks out and and starts beating him or something. And, you know... Freak out in love, which is... Freak out in love, which is what? was kind of what happened there. Yeah. shows that we're not... We are not prepared for loving each other. Mm. We're so much more prepared to be afraid 
I think so many listeners hearing this story are like, wait, waiting for the thing, the horrible thing to happen. Yeah, I think we were. So primed for that. Yeah. If we're primed for that, see then how hard, how much work we have to do to make a world which is safe for all of us to love. Mm. I I think when we look at so many of these stories of the horrible murders, it's there's fear is usually a huge factor. And again, to use your words, that does not excuse anything. And I loved what you said. We're not going to equally dispense our, our concern. I think that's just perfectly put. This is the subtlety we're talking about. But what I, I remember, you know, when the, when the protests were happening and they were getting um, more intense, I, I just remember having the thought, like, I was like, cops aren't like, I know some might be, but I'm like, Cops aren't like excited to go do that. You know what I mean? I'm like, they're probably scared too. And again, I'm not saying let's equally dispense our concern, but in that moment, and maybe it was my own, I don't know what it was, my own mindfulness practice or whatever, but I was like, I I caught myself being guilty of the idea that cops are cops, like in a cartoon. And and again, I can't say it enough. I'm not equally dispensing my concern. But it was a humanizing moment. And I love the story that you told, obviously. You know, we need this. Uh, again, we all are given to put people in these comic book constructions. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're in your reaction mind. First what? Do this first with ourselves, in a way. Mm-hmm. We, we give ourselves a little bit more range. That's but right. actually, you know, even that is often impoverished often impoverished the sense of ourselves the sense of who we are what we can be um the sense of what we can ask for with our loved ones and give first there like mm-hmm. even in the space of our loving relationships we're often it's so funny that you say that because you know visiting family and stuff sometimes the feeling you get is you're like this this house feels haunted because there's emotional things that have not been exercised and they're not acknowledged. I know, you know, and I know, and Valerie, we all know there's things that there's family mythologies, just like there's country mythologies that there's global mythologies. And we all know the, the, the sick to our stomach feeling where you're like, we all just can, we all, we were co-conspirators in covering up our truth. And so many people, we wait till our deathbeds, if that, to be like, I love you. What was that all about? But like, sometimes it's just Thanksgiving where you're just like, I just, I was just pushing a very heavy, a very buoyant balloon underwater for four days. And I think we're doing, so it's like, there's like one issue, you know what I'm saying? And that's, that can kind of be hopeful. There's one issue and it's putting light and awareness and consciousness onto our pain and onto each other and onto ourselves. I think you're right. I think people do inherit a small version of their own story and they're victims in that way that they have to go around thinking, oh, uh, uh, maybe I'm, I'm this. I, I, I'm just a woman, let's say. And, and, we, and they don't have the same opportunities. But we're, we're, we become unwilling or unwitting or unconscious co-conspirators in a story that we didn't write, which again goes back to alcohol. It's like, who told you that you wanted alcohol to be happy? That, I'm just trying to broaden this and say, oh, it's I, true. go and ahead. Like, 
we know that there is a, such a crisis around substance abuse at this time. On top of, you know, it's just one of the interlocking pandemics. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's all it all benefits. I even read a book because I, I I sometimes lean towards overeating. I, I'm sort of an addict in a lot of different ways, and I read this interesting book. I don't really recommend it, which is why I'm not going to say the name of it. But the the concept of it was bringing awareness to it. They were saying there's a part of your brain that thinks you need to eat the entire pint of ice cream or you will die. And all it was trying to do was, uh, and I think my summary, by the way, is better than the book. So please don't think, don't tweet at me what was the book. It's just acknowledging that there's a part of your, a lower part of your brain that developed first in early man, early humanity, that is overactive right now. And all you have to do is find a higher part of you whether it's alcohol, racism, overeating, addiction, misogyny, homophobia, whatever it might be, there's another part of you that's that's separate from it. And if you can use that part of your awareness to look at that part of awareness and be mindful and give it space, talk to it, relate to it, listen to it. I would even say I find benefit in hugging it and saying, I love you, I understand. It's just like you would do with a complicated family member. I love you, I forgive you, I'm sorry. Uh, we're safe right now. You're no longer needed, but you're welcome to stay. I mean, you can sit and, uh, you know what I'm saying? That compassion is transformation and it's every issue. That's so true. I mean, it's, uh, so when someone reading my book said, I love your, your approach because I'm hearing and what I'm hearing you describe here, I think applies, it really does apply to all of these very difficult, deeply internalized um, patterns and habits we have around just coping with our pain and our woundedness and the suffering that we carry. And again, some of that travels with our identities around race and gender and sexual orientation and uh, and the like. Um, But, you know, it travels with around so many different woundings. um, Mm -hmm. And it can lead to so many different types of dysfunctionality, addictions of all sorts, including addiction to these ideologies of difference, right? These narratives of who's really, you know, causing all my pain. And so I do think that, yeah, there is this way in which healing ourselves, I mean, you know, that's the subtitle of the book at least that I wrote, but it's a deep strand of what I feel I've benefited from in my own life. Mm-hmm. Again, growing up in an environment of um, many types of traumas. And today there are all these studies about, you know, adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs studies, and how they predict all these negative things. Well, that may be true in general, but it, you know, there are those of us here to say you can go through a lot of adverse childhood experiences and survive and thrive. And for me, it has been about though, you know, and um, I don't want to suggest that I don't have um, things that I still struggle with. You know, I'm a human being just like everybody else. And um, this point that you're making about kind of finding a way to befriend the suffering, Mm. you know, and to, and partly that is by accessing the part of us that is not suffering and like amplifying and loving that part to feel strong enough. That's what Ramda says. Is the part of you that's noticing the suffering, is it suffering? (laughs) 
And I was like, what? Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>, it's okay. <laughs> and that part, permission. And that can take, for me, it's, you know, again, appealing layers and layers and layers. Um, I will say some part, some huge part of my healing around that didn't happen until I was doing the audiobook, reading, reading my own book. Wow. <laughs> In and of itself, trippy. And I hesitate to name it in this public way, but it was an experience I had reading the, uh, my, um, doing the audiobook for audible.com, right? That whole service, which I had never, I was not a person who reads audiobooks very much and mm. sort of a little skeptical, but then when I had a chance to do it, I grabbed it. And, you know, that is a process for a book like this of many days of reading. But for me also being in a kind of container of support, I had a, you know, a producer there and an editor and different people, who audio engineer, you know, people, a little small group right there listening and supporting me, um, helping me find my voice, literally, mm. to speak to some of the ways I've coped. And in the middle of the week of recording that, I had this amazing dream experience in which I literally, I won't go into the entire dream, but I literally... Um, became the protector that I needed as a young girl when I was being, um, you know, I grew up where there was abuse, as I mentioned before, and there was physical abuse of my mom and uh, other kinds of abuse of me and my, my siblings. Um, and I, in a dreams that I only was able to access, I literally believe it was because of some kind of alchemy that was happening, that has happened after years of practice. But I guess I'm saying this to amplify that I think it's the way we can make room for the part of us that's, that is healed and surround ourselves with that. But it's, and it helps to be in supportive communities and environments. And that's another part of why I do the work that I do. If I thought it was all just a personal project, I would just sit, practice, elevate myself, I guess, and just, you know, go forth. I teach, I try to create spaces where we can do this together because I know that it, it, it's so important to, to not, you know, once you realize that you deserve better, to give yourself better as mm. best you can, right? Put ourselves in, you know, more constructive environments, um, relationships, um, relationships with work and with making money and so that we're not having to compromise and, you know, hide, keep our voice small over and over again all the time not have to feel afraid all the time. So, I mean, really changing these environmental conditions that reinforce the narratives by which we construct our fears. I think, I think that's important. I think. Mm. Beautiful. It's so touching to me that you said protector because a Val was here. She would be flipping out too, because we've been talking about our protectors and, um, I was realizing that my protector is like this Tony Soprano. He's very angry. He's also so easily scared. <laughs> like you can, you can shrink him down to nothing in a moment. And I was noticing that so much of my negative or reactive comes from him. And that, and I've said this before, but forgive me, I'm saying it to you for the first time, is it was like, instead of trying to push him away and say, you idiot, the world isn't so simple. You don't have to be so angry saying, I see you. I, my childhood was scary in its own ways. And you were developed to protect me. 
and 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 starting from a place of thank you and i see you you treat these unwanted i, I put that in quotes feelings and and impulses like little children like little bratty children and you greet them you don't smack a little bratty child you you, you try to love it and you and you and you communicate and connect with it so your dream and and all of that coming up and identifying there's my protector it's it's all what we're saying. It's going, there's my ugliness too. And and there's my fear. And there's my fucking racism. There's my racism. There's, there's, there's yes. my anger. There's, yeah. There's my sexism. That I've there's my greed. There's my, there's my rape culture. There's whatever it might be. It, just ugliness. There it is. Instead of going, I'm a good person and the bad. Richard again talks about how we, do such a great job of projecting our evil. It was in a, around the time of 9-11, and he's like, it's not us, it's the Iraqis. Like He's like, we have no ability to go, could it be us? So when you talk about inner work, one of the things that's been blowing my mind is, and you do bring it to the outer work, but the outer work is the inner work. It's both and. What we see in the world is what's going on in here. When you see a lynching or a murder, it's what's going on in there. When you see a protest or cops standing up and hugging, it's what's going on in here. So I want to dispel the idea that there's those of us sitting on cushions and getting groovy and, and those that are actually doing stuff. It's the getting groovy that makes that changes the snap judgments that I make about a person. Or, and it changes. So it's all... As above, so below. I know you know that. As inside, so outside. It's it's. We need to get over the idea that oh, it would be nice to navel gaze. But I, although I do, you did bring up the idea. I do think we're overworked. I think we're overtired. I think we're underpaid. I think we're scared. I think we're fed fear. And I do think we've been conditioned to believe that quote unquote navel gazing is a luxury of Gwyneth Paltrow while she gets a pedicure. But it, it's fucking not. That's what my that's what my father calls it, navel gazing. I'm like, you mean introspection? You mean asking myself how do I feel in this moment? And my dad would agree with me. He's not a he's not a cement head, but like he does tend to think that what I what I'm into might be a little woo-woo. And I love that we're getting out. It's not woo-woo. It leads to real change. It should and and is intended to lead to real change. And we're not just talking about getting better sleep or reducing our stress. We're changing the story of how we see ourselves and therefore how we see the world and our place in the world by sitting quietly and letting it steer the car instead of my story of who I am. Listen to it instead of telling it who I am. I'm Pete. I'm a man. I'm 6'6". Six, six, I'm a comedian. When I sit, all that goes away, yet I still am. So who is that? Are you 6'6"? Six, six? I'm 6'6". Six, six. I'm the same height as Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> a different experience we are having in this, you know, planetary plane. Oh my! <laughs> I am not quite five one. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yeah, right. So, and I but, bet we could both get the same. I can barely touch the rim. When I watched the Michael Jordan thing, I was like, I can barely touch the rim, and I'm watching him. I'm like, we're the same height. <laughs> we're the same height. <laughs> but you know saying so you know to me justice i think of the ecologies of justice and the different dimensions of it and this being here whether i'm really noticing as i'm sitting here in this conversation with you you know oh the 
parts of me that are like, woo, yes. And the parts of me that are like, I don't, you know, or mm. any kind of like really need I might have to like tend to some tenderness that when I talk about the woundedness from my childhood, for example, mm-hmm. and the next thing, if I can just be with myself and at the same time be open to the, you know, the energetic resonances between us. Um, and then let this kind of live on in my work. Again, we can see very readily that this is always embedded in a world that we're acting on and in. And so what I call personal and interpersonal levels of justice are always embedded in whatever systemic or broader notions of justice that we have. And at this time, in the middle of the multiple intersecting pandemics, you know, where we are, you know, we have these moments to see things that we haven't seen before. I am hopeful that we are waking up um, and, we, you know, maybe waking up to the need to constantly wake up. Mm. Keep trying to fall We will. It's who we are. You know, so we have to have that humility. That is why I practice and why I love to be in communities of practice, which, by which, I, 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 how, which is one of the ways I see this. You know, we're building and experiencing a the community around being aware but it's for always and forever and it's like having the humility to say i'm always to my last day if i'm alive gonna be open to being surprised to learning something new um and 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 at this time i feel that we're also given maybe a little bit of extra time support if we have the courage to really see the narratives the stories you know, the imagined communities, the imagined barriers to community that we have inherited and that we are constantly, not just re-inherited, we're constantly being kind of invited to imbibe all over again, like fresh new thing. Hey, you got this new thing called white supremacy and white nationalism. It's not new. Yeah. Men should be in charge. We've been there, right? But, it, but there's somebody trying to sell that always. You know, and sociologists to me, because I studied that before going into law, you know, we are aware that in any time and place, there are these tensions between that which wants to amplify hierarchy and separation. And we can see that as, this as a psychological, neurobiological thing, a thing humans do to other arise, right? And have us versus them groups, outgrouping group dynamics. So it may be partly neurobiologically, biological, but it's definitely sociological. Like we in groups, we start to normalize and name it. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. And there's, so there's always that dynamic around othering and hierarchy, but there is at the same time wanting to be born and wanting to be amplified and sometimes dominant. That those um, energies around egalitarianism, altruism, caring for each other in a certain kind of way. Mm. And our culture seems as if othering and hierarchy has been dominant for so long that we don't even recognize sometimes that within our culture there are these pockets where yeah what the hell is water the two fish how's the water today and the fish says what the hell is water we don't even know that we're in water we don't know and we don't also recognize that yeah there are some of us who never were running much in the way of hierarchy who, who really see everybody as somebody's mother's, you know, somebody's child, mm. you know? 
And this is partly gendered, I will say my perspective on this. Um, but I don't, but I hold gender in a different way. I think we all have the genders in us. Mm. Yeah, a culture have been like trained around what it looks like to be powerful in the world, amplifying one aspect of the gender dynamic that's in all of us. Mm. So if we can just find some way in this time to like really work together, I think it's work to build and amplify these different ways of seeing each other, being with each other. It's creating new, more subtle language to describe what we're dealing with. So there's white supremacist campaigns for hierarchy and battle. And there's that subtle white supremacy privileging water that we're all imbibing. Those are very different. I know some people react very much to the idea that, you know, there's white supremacy everywhere because they don't see KKK. Mm. So unpacking, like really not shaming people for not understanding what we mean is really important. Tenderness and compassion, given all of the ways we are just struggling right now, seems to be called for. But to tenderly and compassionately be involved in helping us name the world we want to live in and provide color to it, paint it, you know, draw that that picture in ways that we can live more into, even in micro moments. That mm. justice every bit as much as will be reform movements. And we can do, we can you know, be engaged in those projects of justice from wherever we are. And hmm. thank you for letting me be engaged. In of it. course. I love that so much. You know, it's just one tiny thing. I remember reading, they were like, you didn't actually forget something. You forgot to remember it. So if I say, I forgot your name, what you actually did was you forgot to remember it. So when you told me I didn't take a moment to remember it. So sometimes we're like, I don't know how to make a better world. A lot of us aren't even taking the time to picture a better world or, or, or ask ourselves what would it feel like to be in a better world? So it's very interesting. This conversation. What are we against? Anti-racism. What are we right. for? Yeah. Live for today that includes that vision that mm. is not just for myself or my group. And how, you know, how do we make that real today? I, I hope you, I, I feel like we both enjoyed this. I think we did. That was great talking to you. Thank you so much. My sincere pleasure. We're going to put this out tomorrow. Uh, I wanted to get it out as quickly as possible. So thank you so much, Rhonda. It seems silly. Oh, the name of the book, I wrote it down so I get it right, is The Inner Work of Racial Justice. It's fantastic. I haven't finished it, but it covers a lot of what we're talking about. And it's Rhonda V. McGee. Uh, it's spelled Maggie, M-A-G-E-E, um, dot com. Has a lot of your talks just priceless stuff. I, I, I was worried I was going to have you saying what you've said before, but I feel like we struck a, a natural place and, and I'm so grateful. Thank it you. seems silly, but we have the guest every episode, so I don't want to take it away from you. The guest says, it's how we end. The guest says, keep it crispy. It just, you, for our purposes, to put it in our language, it means stay open, stay full of light. So uh, Keep it crispy. <laughs> Thank you. It feels good, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard to say keep it crispy and not kind of feel a little bit lighter than you did before. Talk about crispiness. Yeah, we love it. Crispiness is always good. Um, thank you so much from my heart. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. Are we good, Katie? Okay, Rhonda, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I look forward to listening to you now. Now you've gotten a new fan over here.
Thanks. I sincerely hope you like what you hear. Thank you for taking the time. It was awesome to meet you. I hope we get to do something again. If you ever need me, uh, you have my email. Thank you. And I hope we get to see each other in person because I'm just it's gonna be I know. I'm as tall I'm as tall as a door frame. That's the, a, a door frame is six six if you ever want to just picture me in your house. <laughs> I'm renovating my little condo across town and I just raised up the door frames because it was an old, old San Francisco condo. Oh my goodness. For people like me. So now you if you ever do come over, you will have a door that you don't have to dim, dim down. Perfect. We're back to where we started. Who were you picturing when you made this door? You weren't including me. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Rhonda. I hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.